Hello, Still Spying subscribers and listeners. It's your host, Chip Gibbons, again. If you forgot to subscribe to our new limited series podcast, Primary Sources, you're in luck. Still Spying has ended, but the team at Defending Rights and Descent who brought you Still Spying is creating a new podcast called Primary Sources that brings you the voices of those who expose civil liberties and human rights abuses committed under the guise of national security. This allows us to not only get a sense of the grave threats to a free press underway in the United States right now, but to also appreciate civil liberties and human rights abuses that whistleblowers, journalists, and other truth-tellers have exposed. Because I am certain that if you enjoyed Still Spying, you'll love Primary Sources, we plan to present the first two episodes of Primary Sources as bonus episodes of Still Spying. Both of these episodes deal with the Pentagon Papers, and we go, well, to the Primary Sources themselves. In the last episode, we talked to whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg. In this episode, we chat with James Goodale, the New York Times general counsel behind the legal strategy to defend the Times' right to publish classified information without prior restraint from the federal government. While we are presenting the first two episodes of Primary Sources as bonus episodes of Still Spying, after this, you're going to need to subscribe to Primary Sources. We have great episodes coming up including a deep dive into the history of the Espionage Act I just recorded, and interviews with NSA whistleblower Thomas Drake, CIA whistleblower Jeffrey Sterling, and quite a few more surprises. So please, subscribe to Primary Sources and enjoy episode number two, The New York Times, The Pentagon Papers, and The Secret Weapon of the First Amendment. Fifty years ago today, the Supreme Court made a landmark ruling. The Nixon administration had tried to gag the press, and the court issued them a historic rebuke, creating an enduring precedent for press freedom that lasts to this day. My name is Chip Gibbons, and this is the Primary Sources Podcast. Primary Sources is a limited series podcast presented by Defending Rights and Dissent. As an organization dedicating to defending your freedom to act and your right to know, Defending Rights and Dissent is proud to bring you the voices of those who expose civil liberties and human rights abuses committed under the guise of national security. Last time we spoke to Dan Ellsberg, the man who gave the Pentagon Papers to the people. Initially, he tried giving them to Congress, but they had little interest in violating official Washington's cult of secrecy. So he went to the press, the New York Times, which after internal deliberations decided to publish them. At first, Nixon was more interested in the press coverage of his daughter's wedding, so he hadn't even read the article. But Alexander Haig and Henry Kissinger convinced Nixon that the publishing of the top secret study of the Vietnam War threatened not just his administration, but government itself. The Nixon Department of Justice, in a shocking and unprecedented move, got a federal injunction against the Times, barring them from further publishing the Pentagon Papers. So Ellsberg, who I should note, at this point was on the run from one of the largest FBI manhunts in history, went to the Washington Post. They published, they got shut down. A game of whack-a-mole began. One paper would be barred from publishing and Ellsberg would simply give part of the Pentagon papers to another paper. 
the new paper would publish groundbreaking stories before being shut down by the government. In the end, 17 newspapers, including the Boston Globe, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch, would publish stories based on the Pentagon Papers. At the heart of the New York Times' successful legal strategy was their general counsel, James Goodale. Goodale was already the veteran of two press freedom fights at the Supreme Court. The key to victory was a secret weapon. And while it may seem like an obvious legal strategy for a newspaper seeking press freedom today, back then it was more of a secret weapon. That secret weapon was the First First Amendment. Amendment. Breaking news now, stunning allegations from a whistleblower at the Department of Homeland Security. A whistleblower complaint involving President Trump. What are we doing violating the Constitution? I knew that if I remained silent, that I would be complicit in a crime. A federal judge today ordered the New York Times to suspend temporarily publication of a series of reports based on a secret Pentagon study of how the United States became involved in the Vietnamese War. The government can't just march in and stop us from publishing. We're talking today to James Goodale. Goodale was the New York Times general counsel who was at the heart of their legal fight to publish the Pentagon Papers, as well as several other landmark press freedom battles. He's also the author of Fighting for the Press, the inside story of the Pentagon Papers and other battles. James, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. In a moment, I want to discuss with you the New York Times and the Pentagon Papers. But first, I just want to ask, what was your background like before you came to the Times? Was there anything in it that influenced your thinking around the Pentagon Papers? Well, I was a schoolboy editor. Uh, So uh, those who have been schoolboy editors at an early age uh, gain appreciation of how journalism works, number one. Number two, uh, I uh, was a uh, intelligence reservist, so I knew about classification. And number three, I was a history buff, and the Pentagon Papers uh, consisted of histories written by history PhDs. So those three factors were uh, contributing to my understanding of what I was doing. When I was in high school, they let me edit the opinion section of the newspaper, which I think they still regret to this day. So sure, as New York Times general counsel, well before the Pentagon Papers, you were involved in several earlier landmark victories for the First Amendment, having represented the Times in New York Times v. Sullivan, one of the most important press freedom cases of the 20th century, as well as a very influential case about reporters' privilege. Could you briefly explain what some of those battles were and if they paved the way for the position you would ultimately take in the Pentagon Papers case? Well, the uh, Sullivan case was the first case in which the Supreme Court applied the First Amendment to the law of libel. It happened a million years ago. In fact, as I'm sitting here, the date doesn't peel off my tongue. In 1964, it was decided. So it was started in 1960, in the early 1960s. I can't remember when the suit uh, began. And that was a revolutionary uh, decision by the court because the First Amendment back then was a, a hidden weapon that uh, people who were in the speech game, that is to say, publishers, uh, really didn't reach for automatically to help them uh, make their case. And then uh, when the Supreme Court applied it to the law of libel, which had been sitting around for a million years, uh, that was a uh, wake-up call uh, with respect to the rights that you uh, could assert on behalf of publishers. With respect to the case 
in which a defense was made of the reporter's right to their uh, sources. Uh, by analogy, the approach was the same. The aim of those who wanted to get reporter sources was to subpoena them and argue that reporters had to reply to subpoenas just like everybody else does. Uh, but by uh, looking at the Sullivan case, you could say, well, yeah, but the First Amendment applies and the First Amendment gives a defense with respect to the obligation to cough up information uh, with respect to sources. And uh, so the two cases of which you speak have a common link, namely the First Amendment. Excellent. And those are both landmark cases for people who have not taken a, a First Amendment class in, in law school or, or anything. It's very impressive. You were involved in so many landmark First Amendment decisions. I think most people would have been happy just to have been in one of them. And you uh, certainly changed the course of, of press freedom in the 20th century. When did you first come to learn of the existence of the Pentagon Papers? When did I first learn about the Pentagon Papers? Yeah. Yeah, well, I learned about them. We're talking 1971. So I first learned about them in March uh, 1971 at a large uh, social event down in Washington, in which I was told that the New York Times had uh, received uh, classified information. That was all I was told. Uh, I was not told what it was, what it involved, or indeed what I was supposed to do. I took the hint, however, that I was supposed to know something about how that worked legally, even though I didn't know the Pentagon Papers as such was the subject of the uh, inquiry. And so off I went uh, looking up classified uh, the classified information laws. You, you mentioned it at first you didn't know what, what the content of them were. I, I assume eventually you learned. And tabling the legal question for a minute, I'm just curious, what was your reaction to this sort of explosive revelation that there was a secret history of the Vietnam War? Were you shocked that the government had been misleading the American people around the Vietnam Yeah, when I first, well, when I got to finish the story, or if I don't mean finish, I mean, just to follow it up, I uh, learned uh, six weeks after I'd been told that we had classified information, I learned that that information involved a uh, classified version of the history of our relationship with uh, Vietnam. And in order to make a judgment with respect to it, I had to read uh, some of the Pentagon Papers. And to answer your question, uh, I was shocked with what I read at the deception uh, and the lies that uh, were in uh, the Pentagon Papers' history. The history of our relationship with Vietnam was full of, full of lies and misstatements. So what does the debate or decision to publish the Pentagon Papers look like inside the New York Times? Well, the debate was uh, whether one should respect the classified stamp or not. And uh, those who thought their stamps should be respected were those who ordinarily would respect the authoritarian approach to the relationship between the government and uh, the citizen. And on the other side was my, uh, pretty much myself, who said, yeah, okay, the classified stamp's important, but uh, the First Amendment's important too. So what you got to do is you look at the classified stamp, and then you do just what you did in the reporter's privilege case and what you did in the libel case, you say, okay, we have a relationship, we have a past practice. Now, let's ask ourselves under the First Amendment whether that practice will survive a First Amendment scrutiny. 
in my view, it didn't uh, survive First Amendment scrutiny. And the other side well, position was, A, their First Amendment didn't apply, and uh, B, if it did, it didn't make any difference. And who is the New York Times? You're the general counsel for the New York Times, but they also have an outside counsel. Yeah, the outside counsel. Every firm has an outside counsel. Uh, and uh, the name of such counsel is called Lord Day and Lord. And how did they react to the decision to publish the Pentagon Papers? Well, when uh, the publication took place and uh, that firm was informed, it was also asked, uh, since post-publication, the government wanted to stop it, the firm was asked to defend the Times, and their reaction was uh, that they couldn't do it because uh, they had a conflict of interest with respect to such defense since the lead partner in the firm, former Attorney General of the United States, Herbert Brownell, was Attorney General when the classification regulations were adopted Mm -hmm. under his aegis. And he believed that with respect to determining the uh, application and effectiveness of those regulations, if he were called to uh, opine, uh, he would have a conflict because he'd have to say on the one hand, he adopted it. And then if he wanted to defend us, he'd have to say they were unconstitutional as applied. And he believed he couldn't do both things. And was there anyone else inside the Times who was a skeptical of your legal theory or of the idea of, of publishing the Pentagon? Paper? Well, in, within the Times itself, there were two or three uh, executives who thought that the risk of publication was too great for the uh, the institution to tolerate. and. Uh, so we had a conflict not only between outside lawyer and the uh, institution, but within the institution itself, uh, there are three, two or three uh, uh, individuals who thought it was just the wrong thing to do. Uh, you alluded to this earlier, but how does the Nixon administration respond to the Times? Nixon administration, in the first instance, didn't pay any attention to it since it, the publication took place on a Sunday. And Nixon's daughter had been married on the preceding Saturday. And that's all they were thinking about. But come Monday, the Secretary of Defense got perturbed and woke up the White House, uh, as did several other people. And the White House began to get very uh, exercised and uh, concluded that uh, if the Times didn't stop the publication, uh, the government would stop it for the Times by going to court and getting an order to stop publication. And and what is the general atmosphere for press freedom like at this time during the Nixon administration? The general atmosphere was not dissimilar to the way it was under Trump. Nixon was anti-press from the get-go. That's to say, from the time he became elected president in 1968, he had a vice president who attacked the press. His name was Agnew. Uh, he, uh, Nixon, or his administration had subpoenaed a New York Times reporter to force testimony from that reporter. About the Black Panther Party, correct? About the Black Panther Party, yes. It was a black reporter who was subpoenaed, by the way. So it's fair to say that the attitude of the Nixon administration toward the press was highly antagonistic. So they seek this injunction against publication. What then happens? Well, uh, as I said, the uh, first thing that happens, you don't have a law firm because Lord Dan Lord didn't want to defend it. So we had to get your put your team together. I could put a team together quickly because we put a team together to deal with the Black Panther subpoena situation. 
and I was able to call on them. And so in the court, you go with the government saying stop publication and uh, my team saying no. And this goes, I believe you got your court date on, on, on you had to be in court the same day you heard about the, the case. Is that correct? Well, pretty, pretty close to it. We learned about we learned about the uh, fact that there would be a case the night before. And then the early, not so early, about say 11 o'clock the next morning, we were down there defending it. And is this in the Supreme Court or a district court? This would be a district court. District court. Okay. And how does the district court rule? District court ruled against us because uh, there was so much material in the Pentagon Papers. The court thought that without knowing the government's view with respect to uh, the volumes of the Pentagon Papers, which totaled 40 plus, it couldn't properly decide the appropriate result of the litigation without hearing from the government. So we were stopped. Do you then go to a, a circuit court or, or do you go straight to the Supreme Court? What's what's sort of... No, you, no, you go you go to uh, the federal... The way the system is, is trial court, which is where we were, and then you go to appellate court, then you go to the Supreme Court. And did the appellate court uh, so, rule any better than the district court? Or no? Well, the district court turned, turned around once we had a chance to say there's nothing in there. That is there being the 40 plus volumes. We were able to convince the district court to dissolve the injunction it had granted earlier and uh, permit us to publish. The government then immediately appeals to the next court and says, stop. The government stopped us again. So the appellate court stopped us. But meanwhile, back at the farm, the Washington Post publishes because the leaker, whose name was Ellsberg, had delivered half the Pentagon Papers to the Washington Post. And the Washington Post carried forward, published until it too was stopped. And so both of us are stopped uh, at one point. And then you eventually wind up in the Supreme Court of the United States. What happens there? At the Supreme Court, we have a big argument. And uh, we don't know how it's going to come out. The Supreme Court decides only a few days later that the government is wrong and the publishers win six to three. It's a pretty quick turnaround. A lot of times this litigation goes on for, for protracted periods. And there's a world's, world's record for getting the Supreme Court. We got there in 17 days, and sometimes it takes 17 years. Yes. No, I know. We, we follow a lot of different First Amendment and civil rights cases and uh, you'll have three different presidents by the time you finally get to the Supreme Court. So I'm very impressed that you're able to get there in, in, in 17 days. So what is the impact of both the Supreme Court's ruling as well as the Times' decision to publish the, the Pentagon Papers? The impact is that the case itself has become, uh, in retrospect, was at the time, in any event, is a great First Amendment case, not really because the press won. I mean, that's the end result. Issue is, how much did it win by? It won by a lot. Supreme Court didn't say, you didn't show me clear and present danger, government. Supreme Court didn't even use clear and present danger. Uh, it used a test that implied immediate danger uh, to the nation or its people. A huge requirement for the government to meet to stop publication. And so the net result was that not only was there a victory, but it was a great victory for the First Amendment. It appears now that we've had a chance to look at it for over 50 years and put it in its place in history, that there's an argument that it's one of the great First Amendment histories, uh, excuse me, victories of all time. 
and maybe uh, stands up with the great constitutional cases of all time, of which we learn as uh, children, such as Marbury versus Madison, uh, Dred Scott, names that are part of our childhood lexicon. There's an argument the Pentagon Papers case is part of that lexicon. I believe, as I've thought about it more and more over the last few years, that indeed it is part of such lexicon. And I think part of the reason, to tell the truth, the alliteration of Pentagon Papers doesn't hurt it. But of course, that's trivial. That's trivial. But the substance is that the government, there's certain things the government can't do. I would say stopping publication, everyone would now agree, is one of those things the government just can't do. That'd be my view anyway. So I, I want to jump 50 years into the present. We, we talked about the past. When you look at the current landscape, you've seen a record number of journalist sources, uh, whistleblowers, leakers, whatever you want to call them, first under Obama, then under Trump, indicted under the Espionage Act. By all counts, Biden doesn't seem to be reversing courses here. His DOJ just recently secured a conviction against Daniel Hale, the whistleblower for the drone papers. We saw the Obama Department of Justice go after a then New York Times reporter, James Risen, trying to get him to give up his source. And we saw the Trump administration bring, for the first time, an indictment under the Espionage Act against a publisher, Julian Assange. And I, I want to note for listeners here that the Trump administration originally did not bring an Espionage Act indictment. They brought a Computer Fraud and Abuse Act indictment. And many people said, well, there's no press freedom threat here. There's nothing to worry about. You dissented very loudly and, and very much sounded the alarm about what was coming next. And you were you were proven right. I would also note that defending rights and dissent also sounded the alarm then as well. So I guess looking at the world today, what's your assessment of the current state of press freedom? Far from a great victory, I think with respect to the narrow confines that we are talking about, it's worse in as much as there are indictments, as you point out, of those who are uh, leakers of information. Those are the Ellsbergs of the world. Such indictments did not exist before the Pentagon Papers case in 1971. The government has gone ahead and indicted how many leakers? I don't know, probably around a dozen or something like that. It's a very bad practice. I'm not sure. I'm absolutely convinced it's not. Uh, anticipated or provided for by the Espionage Act. Though decisions are at a lower level, so we don't know what the Supreme Court would do. But even though I think I'm right, I don't have a lot of confidence for the Supreme Court to agree with me. So that's a major problem. My worst problem is the second problem to which you refer, the indictment of WikiLeaks for publishing information about national security. In uh, connection with that uh, indictment of such publication, there is an indictment that relates to uh, computer f- fraud and abuse. As to the latter indictment, I think it's a phony indictment. Uh, as to the former indictment, it's highly dangerous that publisher a publisher has been indicted for publishing information relating to the national security of the United States, as uh, which is a, a way of saying that relating to information that has been classified. The uh, case uh, will be unwound at some point, and hopefully we'll do better than we've done thus far. But the two events to which I referred are deeply troubling. If Assange is convicted, what would the impact of that be? If Assange is convicted, it would be a real mess, because it will mean that the Supreme Court has uh, decided that the Espionage Act applies to publication. 
it will mean that any time anyone wants to publish information related to the national defense, particularly when such information has been classified that such publisher will be running a risk of being indicted. It'll mean that no one will want to publish such information. And so it'll mean the government has gained greater control over its information since no one will want to publish it and take a chance of going to jail. So I don't know if you saw this, but Daniel Ellsberg is back in the news. He never quits. He has released further documents that he copied at the time with the Pentagon Papers, but did not release then pertaining to, I believe, the potential use of nuclear weapons in the late 1950s over a dispute over Taiwan. And he's basically sort of challenging at age 90, the Department of Justice to bring an Espionage Act indictment against him. What do you think of what Ellsberg is currently doing? Well, I think that he's right to raise the issue of the use of the atomic bomb in foreign relations. Secondly, he's right to raise it in connection with Taiwan because the Chinese presidency are putting a lot of pressure on Taiwan. And so to the extent that he has put this in the public uh, domain and made it part of public conversation, I think that's a good idea. I guess my final question to you, and I, I don't believe he's a listener of this podcast, but if you could say something to President Joseph Biden about press freedom and where we're headed at this moment, what would you say to him? What advice would you give him? What would you tell him to do? Well, tell him to do uh, the following. One, follow through with respect to stopping the Justice Department from accessing phone records, et cetera, of journalists. That one should be a winner for the press because he's indicated that he will probably do that. Number two, stop the practice of indicting uh, those who are leaking. The information that is being leaked probably is in the interest of the public uh, to uh, learn about. Discipline the leaker, if you wish, but do not deal with the leaker criminally. Thirdly, Keep your options open. Keep your eyes open for the time to protect Assange. It may be that Assange's case will die in England and he won't have to do anything. But for goodness sakes, don't go forward with any prosecution of Assange. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about the 50th anniversary of the publishing of the Pentagon Papers. It's a timely conversation, not just because of the anniversary, but because of the continued press freedom problems where facing with. James, it was a real honor to spend the time with you and, and to hear about this directly from you. Okay. Thank you very much. Pleasure here too. 